Well, I'm going to do something a little different that I don't believe I've ever done here before. And that is I'm going to read the text out of a different translation. It's called The Message. And it is so refreshing and, and so easy to understand. And then we'll, I'll teach out of the ESV, which is what we normally teach out of here. But it's just delightful to paint the picture first. And then when we work through the passage, you'll, you'll know exactly what's going on. So this is the message. And I'm going to begin in Isaiah chapter 52 and work our way through 53. It's not that many verses, actually. We read that God is saying of his son Christ, the Messiah, just watch my servant blossom, exalted, tall, head and shoulders above the crowd. But he didn't begin that way. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback. Kings shocked into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they will see with their own eyes. And what was unthinkable, they will have right before them. Who believes what we have heard and seen, says Isaiah? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? Quite the mystery. The servant, the Lord Jesus, grew up before God. A scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him. Nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, though he thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pain he carried. Our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment that made us whole. Through the bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing and gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. On him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried. And he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare. Beaten, bloody, for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked. Threw him in a grave with a rich man. Even though he'd never hurt a soul. Or said one word that wasn't true. Still. It is what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin, so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it. And be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones. As he himself carries the burdens of their sins. Therefore, God says the Father, I will reward him extravagantly. 
the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all of the black sheep. Amen. The message. Very clear. So if you turn your Bibles to Isaiah 52 and then 53, that's what we'll be looking at this morning. My brothers, co-pastors, the last three, um, have taught on the first three of this uh, series about the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is written by the prophet Isaiah, and he predicted through God's plan and will that there would be a coming Messiah. I think it started off in Isaiah chapter 44. And there's four stanzas or four sections in these songs, the servant's songs, that talk about his calling and his coming, about the work he was going to do, the grace he would bring, and this final chapter that many of you are familiar with, the death he would die so that we might have eternal life. I remember when I was a young man in San Francisco and I was um, talking with a, an acquaintance considering whether I wanted to come to Christ or not. I was nervous and afraid. I didn't know what that meant. But one thing I did know, my life was ruined in a wreck. And so I was very, very hesitant. Man shared the gospel with me for about a year. And then my life would finally crash in. And uh, I've never been the same since. That was 47 years ago. I'll never get, forget what he said because it's kind of, you could stamp this phrase over these two chapters. He said, Bill, Christ died for you and now all he wants you to do is live for him. Fair exchange, I thought. Christ died for you and I and now we're called to live for him. The specifics of what Isaiah predicted was written seven to eight hundred years before Christ came. Seven to eight hundred years before he came. And the word usage that we'll see together is so detailed and so specific, time frame, exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus, the reason he did it, and the glory that follows it, written hundreds of centuries before he showed up. Now you do understand that when a prophet would prophesy anything that was to come in the future, be it God's judgment or God's grace, if his prophecy picture or statement wasn't exact if one detail was off they were stoned to death immediately so prophets obviously were called by the Lord and in those days although they had the Pentateuch first five books of the Bible they didn't have a Bible like we have it, and so how they knew God's will was through the prophets. The prophets would tell us what God was going to do and tell us what God was looking for and tell us what was necessary to have a relationship with the Lord. They were the authority figures of that day. Now the Word of God is the authority figure of our day. But then they didn't have the Word of God in total. 
And they took very serious about the things they said and the things that would be written about what they said in the manuscripts. And I only point this out to show you the accuracy of what we're going to read today and how long ago it was written so people could read it. And the example was what was found in 1947 called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are, they were found by a Bedouin shepherd in the honeycomb caves dotted along the rugged hillside near the Dead Sea. And this particular Bedouin shepherd was taking his sheep for a walk to graze where they could find grass in that arid area. And he stumbled into one of the many thousands of caves there. You can go there today. There was a monastery in a community right down at the base of the mountains called Qumran. It's still there. It's quite the sight. Take your breath away. But this particular shepherd uh, went into a cave to get some rest and saw multiple clay pots. Large ones, small ones, medium size. And as he looked into the pots, hundreds of them, he found many, many manuscripts of ancient writings by the Jewish scribes who were very, very meticulous not only to write of the history and God's word at that time, but they stored them meticulously for thousands of years. And so some of the manuscripts they found in there included the book of Isaiah. Almost the entire manuscript of Isaiah. The book we have before us. The interesting thing about that was that in 1947, the current book of Isaiah that people were reading were manu from manuscripts a thousand years past. They were a thousand years newer than the manuscripts were found. And almost every word, now I don't know this scientifically, but I've just heard this by professors, almost every word in the old, thousand-year-old before book of Isaiah that was found was exact to the book found a, year, a thousand years later. They kept their manuscripts precise. And so what we're going to read before us now are prophecies made of the coming Messiah the one who God the Father would send his people to deliver them from the bondage and the harsh realities of life so that they would live evermore with him. 800 years before it happened. So, verse 52 you're going to see in, in this particular chapter that Isaiah had three themes, and he keeps going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And these are the three things he covers. He talks about who Jesus was, who he was, and his origin. He talks about what he did and what was done to him. And then he talks about why he did what he did for you and I. Chapter 52, verse 13. We read that, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This is God speaking of his son. 
he refers to the Messiah coming as his servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So the first thing that he points out is that the nature of this coming king, the Son of God, would have a character of wisdom. He'll be noted for his wisdom. We know that when he did come and he taught in the synagogue and among the streets of Jerusalem, people were enamored. They were charmed. They were speechless because he spoke as one that had authority and he did it with a twinkle in his eye. They couldn't wait to hear him speak again. That's why when as, as time went on, it started with smaller groups and on two different occasions, he spoke to 4,000 along the Sea of Galilee on a hill and then again 6,000 and miraculously fed them loaves and fishes. They want to hear him. They couldn't get enough. His wisdom was in his words. His wisdom was seen in his obedience to the Father's will. Paul says in Philippians that he left his throne of grace and humbled himself to become obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And we also see his wisdom by his determination. The Bible says that he was set as a flint. He sent his face as a flint for the mission that he came to do. And that was to sacrifice his life on Calvary's cross for the sins of many. The sins of, of the world. Nothing would dissuade him. Nothing would keep him from doing what he's supposed to do. There was one moment when sorrow overwhelmed him in the Garden of Gethsemane, the twisted olive grove that is still there today with some of those same 2,000-year-old trees. As he said, my soul is troubled. And he, he, he clutched the dirt under those mighty trees as his sweat were like drops of blood and his three closest friends were asleep. He told them to pray for him and they were asleep. He crutched, clutched that ground and said, Father, if there's any possible way for you to take this cup of suffering from me, please. And he no longer finished that sentence there wasn't even a period there he said not my will but thine be done he showed his wisdom in going all the way to face a death that very few have faced not to mention bearing the sins of the world who no one else could face he came with wisdom. By the way, a little sidebar. Good definition of wisdom for us as believers is learning to see our life in our circumstances from God's perspective until the Lord helps us see through the pages of Scripture that are not dead ink words but powerful and on fire like a sword that cut through the very attitudes and motives of our life until we can see with God's help that what we're going through today, till we can see it from God's perspective and lens, we'll be tempted to struggle and in some cases get bitter. Wisdom is seeing our life in growing measure the way God sees it. Now immediately, Isaiah jumps to 
a picture of the cross, his manhood, in what he did. Look at verse 14. As many were astonished at you. You see, the Jews, their Messiah was going to come as a king in royal robes on a white horse to crush the uh, the um, Roman government. He was to come in like a blaze of glory and show that they were the supreme nation. And so when they saw this common-looking Jewish man claimed that he was the king to be and the Messiah, they were confused and perplexed. This was a mystery to them. They didn't understand this new king. And when they saw him on the tree that was cursed, we read many were astonished. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. They were so brutal. The Roman soldiers, since Pilate sentenced him to death, almost beat him to death. His face was unrecognizable. We read in one text that they took their staff and hit him in the head over and over and over again. They pushed a crown of thorns, and if you ever go to Israel, you'll see these thorns bushes. They're about three inches long into his skull. They whipped him mercilessly, mercilessly. And if any of you have ever seen the movie, The Passion, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I was raised in a Catholic church, and I was taught respect for the Lord as a young man. I I didn't understand the dynamic of personally committing my life to follow Him and picking up my cross to follow Him, which is a verb, not just the noun of knowing about Him. Um, the Catholic Church, nothing against I mean, I got my respect from the Lord from the Catholic Church, and, it, and the Lord moved me on to where I am at today, but I learned a lot. However, the Catholic Church, as you'll see in that particular movie, The Passion, emphasized the cross and the brutality of his suffering and at the very end, there was only about 10 seconds showing him walking out of the tomb, the resurrection. Uh, and that's why they have crucifixes, which Christ is still on the cross as a crucifix. Um, our cross doesn't have Christ on it because he rose from the dead. But the passion was emphasized to show what he went through. And Isaiah spends a lot of time, but he talks about the resurrection. He emphasizes it. Then a very interesting verse. He just shows a picture of how Christ was marred and unrecognizable. And then immediately he flips to what he did. Who he was. What he went through. Now what he did. Look at verse 15. Very interesting. Um, So shall he sprinkle many nations. He's referring to the sprinkling of blood in the Old Testament at the Day of Atonement. So the priest of old, of antiquity, once a year would the Jewish people would go to the temple, and in this case they would take a goat, and they would take the blood of a goat And he would sprinkle it on the altar, on the people, for the forgiveness of sins once a year. And so this Christ, who was marred, unrecognizable, wise in 
ever so winsome who spoke with authority was also a priest. He's, his work was that of a priest. Although he was not only the priest, he was the sacrifice as well. And he allowed his blood, blood to be sprinkled on the cross as it made its way down to the foot of the cross in the movie Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. We saw a little stream of blood go down into the city representing the blood going out for the sins of the world. He came to forgive. He came to shed his blood. And we read the next verse, but it was still unbelievable because kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Shock and awe for that which has been told, for that has which has not been told, them they see, and that which they see they have not heard or understood. They, it was a mystery. God has hidden the truth of the gospel as mysteries. Yet he says, for those who seek me with all their heart, they shall find me. Isaiah 53 verse 1. So Isaiah says, so who's going to believe the message that I give as a prophet. Many prophets talked about the second coming. We're talked in the book, taught in the book of Micah, the exact place that he would be born, Bethlehem. And multiple other prophecies, hundreds of years in advance. And then he says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, the arm of the Lord is the power of God. How is the power of God going to show itself? Well, it showed itself in an entirely different way than expected. It showed itself initially in brokenness and weakness. Look at the next verse, verse 2. For he grew up, the Lord Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. That is not a very flowery picture of the Lord Jesus' humble beginnings. He didn't show himself as a king to be enthroned. He came up out of a dry, parched ground, generally, by the way, where previously... The mighty cedars of Lebanon grew. Now this little shoot, we're told that he was going to be a shoot from King David. He was going to be a shoot in the line of David. When Christ came, the world was never as ready the Romans ruled the world with blood and an iron fist. Interestingly enough, it was the first time in history that the genius of the Romans carved out highways and pathways through the known world. And it was also a time when Koine Greek became the common language so people could read and understand. We read that in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. But it wasn't expected the way he came. Sleepy shepherds in a cave on urinated straw. The king of kings and the lord of lords. He was just a wilted, unexpected shoot out of dry ground that would grow into a mighty Lord. We read then that people will be shocked. Again, 
he had no former majesty that we should look at him. He wasn't handsome. There was nothing swagger about him but his heart, his word and his mission. He wasn't the type that you would do a double take on. No majesty. No physical charm that people should look at him. No beauty that should be desired by him. Why? Because that's not what mattered. What mattered was who he was and what he did. I was talking about this with the men's breakfast the other way, a little commercial here, by the way. Do you know that every Saturday morning for the last 40 years or more, every Saturday morning, excuse me, (laughs) after 40 years, you should know it better than I. The last 40 years, every Friday morning at 6.30, Breakfast is served. And then, Pastor Rick, now Pastor Travis, and some of us who are going to teach next, have a discussion of our upcoming passage, and they help us with our sermon. Guys, you need to go. If you can make it, you got to go. Very encouraging, especially if you're new with the church. Um. And they, 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 we talked about, now why would the Lord send just a common looking Jew? Why didn't he not come in, in, come in on a blaze of glory? And, and, and one of the guys says, you know, God is God of mystery. This is to be secret. The depths of God's mystery. And we have to take it by faith. So he would not send him in like the other kings. He would just be a simple, common, unattractive Jew. Verse 3. He was not only wounded physically, he was a wounded and torn even worse spiritually and emotionally. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The title of the message is A Man of Sorrows Acquainted with Grief. His resume, the first line in his resume, was A Man of Sorrow Acquainted with Grief. Yet, he never complained about it. He absorbed it as God's post for him. He willingly accepted it as his mission out of obedience to the Father's will. But it was the most painful for him. We read in Luke that as he rode the donkey into Jerusalem, they praised him his followers at this time and sang Hosanna, Hosanna and threw palm branches under the feet of the mule or the donkey which was the sign of a coming king and yet some of those very same people were at his cross cursing them days later um, he wept over Jerusalem. Yeah, he's only wept a couple times. He wept at the death of Martha, Mary and Martha, Lazarus's death, her brother. He wept there. No, here I am. I'm back. We're told in Hebrews that he cried frequently out of his pain and sufferings, but we know of two specific times, Mary and Martha, and here. He wept as he looked over the city of Jerusalem because he said, I I taught you. I took you under my wing like a mother gathers her chicks. 
I told you of my coming, and you would not believe. And now you face the most severe wrath and destruction, which was believed to have been in 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem. Many people think that. We see that he has borne, verse 4, our griefs. Now there's a Jewish sentiment. There's a Jewish sentiment that suggests, it's really what the Jews believed, is that when someone had to go to a cross, or someone's life, like Job, for example, when someone's life was riddled and dotted with pain and suffering, it was because of something they did wrong. Some kind of rebellion or disobedience that they had to the Father. And so these Jews, when he claimed to be the Son of God, and when, when he was on Calvary's cross, they wagged their fingers, and they shook their head, and they spit in his face, because you're getting what you deserved. You have sinned, and this is the appropriate punishment for your sin. The truth of the matter is, though, he never sinned, and he took our sin on him and suffered the wrath of God so that you and I can be forgiven. Yes? Never doubt it. Ever. We don't have the capacity to pay for our own sin. Because we were born into sin. He's perfect. And so he is the one that carried our sin. Look at these verses, 4 through 6. This is the key. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. No, God struck him. God crushed him to the ground because of him. And yet Isaiah says, no. It was our sins, our griefs, our sorrows. Verse 5, he was wounded to the core of his soul for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Is there any doubt who died for whose sins? That was predicted 800 years ago. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Because his father chastise him on the cross because he bore our sins then and only then the you and I find peace which was given to us the day we broke the sound barrier and said yes to Christ and our lives can be a wreck many of them are I think we create our own chaos personally we can be going through the darkest time of our life today. And if you get quiet enough, and you turn your heart to God's Word, and you pray, and you submit your pain, you're going to find that there's peace under the core of the pain. There's a deep peace. No one without Christ will ever experience that, ever. It's the peace that passes all understanding. He brought us peace through the punishment Christ took on the cross. I don't understand it. But somewhere in the wisdom and in the economy of God and his kingdom... The only way to have forgiveness is through the shedding of the blood. I don't understand it. In this case, he was the Lamb of God. 
that shed his blood that would take away the sins of the world, those who commit to him. We were crushed for our iniquities. Look at six, uh, verse 6. He talks about our condition. Isaiah does. And our need for this Lamb of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us. There's not a person in this room that does not have a rebellious bent towards evil. We have the Holy Spirit. We're going to heaven. But our bent is to do wrong. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, the things I desire to do, I do not do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And that is every one of us sitting in this room. That's called a sin bent. He says, all of us are like sheep who go astray. We're going to get off the path. We're going to go our own way. We're going to determine what we want to do, what when we want to do it. I was told, by the way, uh, you know, a long time ago that that this upper rogue area here, that there's a lot of um, people that moved here into the woods. You know why? Because no one's telling me what to do. Did you know that we live in an area where no one's telling, there's a lot of people where no one's telling them what to do? No one. Matter of fact, you tell me not to touch the paint, I'll touch the paint. You tell me I can only eat certain foods, I'll eat other foods. Nobody is telling me how to run my life. That's why I live in the woods. Thank you very much. Well, then you better get used to Jesus because he's the king. And you're the servant. All we like sheep are stubborn. We want our own way when we want it. Even as Christians. At weak moments. We. All we like sheep. We. Isaiah is talking about himself too. Have turned everyone to his own way. Everyone. So when people come to you and say, you know what? I believe you get to heaven by your good works. You're not finding that anywhere in the scripture, nor is it true. Nor it is even, nor is it even possible. It's not even possible. And the Lord has laid him on him all of our iniquity. To do what we could never do. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. That speaks of emotional pain from the community. From those who hated him. Yet. He opened not his mouth. A lamb that was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Humble. Walked willingly to the slaughter for our sin. I was asked a couple years ago to speak at a, um, a firefighter's award banquet. And I said, well, what would you like me to do? They said, we have a, a theme for our fire department, we, we want you to talk about the tip of the spear. I said, what's the tip of the spear? The tip of the spear were the Roman legions that first went into battle. They were the ones that first threw the ropes over the walls and made pathways up to Masada and showed their spears. They were the the legion of 200 men who would be seen marching in perfect cadence over the crest of the mountains to the enemy territory with the sun bouncing off the tip of the spears. They were the first one in. 
And I go, well, wow, that is cool. That's true of you too because you're first responders all the time. My wife's a nurse, nurses, people in healthcare, first responders. People of courage and bravery. And uh, so at that time when I went to speak, I, I read a little uh, a heroic story out of uh, um, the 9-11 catastrophe, catastrophe. Captain Jones was the captain of the 6th Ladder Division, Search and Rescue. After the North Tower had already gone down, uh, they knew the South Tower was next. Some of us knew that as we watched it on TV in horror. And they ran back in to the North Tower to rescue and find survivors before that building would come down. I don't know how many floors they were up, but they noticed a a 59-year-old woman who had fallen and couldn't move and was horrified. She was in a different part of uh, the hallway, apparently, or the stairwell somewhere. And they stopped, and they went, and they got her, and they carried her out. The captain says something interesting. He said, interestingly enough, as the, the, the building started to crumble and as it would happen, had we not been in that particular location to help her, we would have gone down with the building. They picked up this woman who was helpless, who could not save herself, a victim, They carried her out on her back to safety. Isaiah says, this king of kings that will come in hundreds of years will pick you up on his back and carry you all the way home through his shed blood because we can't get there on our own. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for generations who considered that he was cut off of the living, his father cut him off. It said, son, your time's up. It's time to go, son. And then Jesus had his most painful moment when while on Calvary he said, father, father, why have you forsaken me? God could not look on the sin that his son was bearing. He forsake him for a moment, never left. But he forsook him for a moment because our rebellion was on his son. And then he said it is finished. Happy day. Father, the price is paid. Into my hands I commit your spirit. And so Isaiah finishes out, verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. It's like the father saying, My son, it's all going to be worth it. The Lord knew that, Jesus as well. When I bring you up with the power of the Holy Spirit out of that grave, you will be so satisfied. For those of you on a very personal note, did you know that this also is a picture, the death and resurrection of Jesus is a picture of what could happen in our life as followers of Christ frequently because after every death in Jesus, there's a resurrection. And I'm talking about any kind of death, emotional, relational, We have hope because of this first song that we saw carried out in 33 AD on a hill outside the walls of Jerusalem. We also now in Christ are satisfied, are we not? The full satisfaction will come when we see him face to face and throw our crowns at his feet.
Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Final verse. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. I will provide, I will bless. Paradise is his with the many. Guess who the many is? You and I and anyone that has ever confessed the name of Christ from 33 on, and even in the Old Testament, they had their way of confessing their faith. We're the many. We're going to be provided for. Because he poured his soul out to death and was numbered with the transgressions, transgressors and makes intercession, we will see him again and have eternal life. I end with this uh, little quote. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had his own family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of these things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a rich friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as this one, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As we pray, we're going to end with a worship course if you will come that will focus us on what we just talked about. Um, Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we are without words. We are also in shock and awe. All we know is that we're thankful. We never want to look back. And we can't wait to bow before you for your grace that chose us, some of us, when we weren't even looking. Lord Jesus, come quickly. In your name we pray. Amen.